Welcome to the seventh episode of Armed Love, the Antifada side project about the revolutionary countercultures of the 60s and let's just say 70s at this point. Today we're talking about the subject of the new book from PM Press, the Mohawk Warrior Society, a handbook for survival with three of its editors, Philippe Blauen, a translator and political anthropologist in Montreal, filmmaker and anthropologist Malik Rasamni, and filmmaker and my colleague at the Woodbine Autonomous Space in Queens, Matt Peterson. You might know the Mohawk Warrior Society best from their red and yellow warrior unity flag, which became somewhat ubiquitous in circles and blockades around the AIM and Red Power movements. And we'll be talking today about the history and perspectives of the Mohawk people, their land occupations in Ganiawe and Oka, and what decolonization means in practice and how leftists can understand it and take part. Oh, and since it's Arm Love, we'll also be talking somehow about MKUltra and Leonard Cohen. Enjoy the episode! Hi, I'm Philippe Blouin. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at McGill University. And uh, I've been working with uh, uh, Gehaga Mohawk Traditionals for about eight years now, uh, since I first met them in the company of uh, Matt and Malik here. And uh, since then, I devoted all my time and energy and uh, uh, spiritual capacities to, to understanding uh, uh, their worldview, which just fascinates me. And that is a worldview in struggle. And that has a very important message for the whole world. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm I'm a filmmaker and archivist and documentarian. And and since 2014, Malik and I have been collaborating on a project called The Native and the Refugee, which is a a multimedia documentary project looking at American Indian reservations in the United States alongside Palestinian refugee camps in the Middle East. And and, um, part of the project was for us to travel to Aguasazne, which is a Mohawk territory, which spans the United States and Canada across the border and spans the states of New York and the provinces of Ontario and uh, excuse me the provinces of Quebec and Ontario and um you know that was a really fascinating case study you know thinking about sovereignty and jurisdiction and these colonial borders which which came onto this this territory which existed before Europeans arrived and on that territory is the Mohawk Warrior Society and we kind of started a collaboration with them uh, to understand this place and also think about these histories and kind of different forms of resistance, uh, in particular, post-68, the kind of revival of the Mohawk Warrior Society and the kinds of militancy that took place uh, in upstate New York and outside Montreal. Um, so that inter- interested uh, us, you know, myself and, and Phil and Malik. So that's sort of an entryway into the book. And, you know, wanting the book is basically something we wanted to exist when we were doing the research, but we realized didn't exist. So Partly for us, it was to produce this this document or this archive of a collection of materials and thoughts that that we wish existed when we started. Um, so that for me, that's where the project comes from. My name is Malik Rasamni. I'm uh, I'm currently uh, also a PhD student, also in anthropology uh, in Paris. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to echo what Matt said. I mean, we initially came to to Aquasazne and to the well, we initially came to the Mohawk Warrior Society through Akwesasne uh, and through this lens of trying to understand how both reservations and Palestinian refugee camps can um, be places that encapsulate 
and define um, a struggle, uh, a struggle against settler colonialism, actually, in both cases, uh, and also uh, can encapsulate a certain kind of mode of governance or a certain kind of way of life in different ways. Um, and so that that's what got us into it initially. But I think what we realized, and this is true of, of all the reservations and all the refugee camps, there's so many micro-political struggles and uh, uh, micro-political um, kind of dimensions uh, to to the to to each reservation and each refugee camp in each particular place or community, and so within the universe of the native and the refugee, there are many kind of micro uh, worlds almost. And in the case of Aquasazni, what became really fascinated was not just the contemporary issues going on in Aquasazni, but this kind of group that had a longer history. I would say a dual history. Uh, it had a contemporary face. But then it also had this kind of modern history that leads up to and kind of climaxes in the Oka uh, crisis, uh, which is well known in Canada, maybe less so in the United States. We can talk about that more later if you guys want. But it has this kind of modern dimension, but then it also has this kind of um, dimension that spans back hundreds or arguably even thousands of years. Uh, and so it was obvious to us that that element needed further, needed to be developed further. Um, and one of the beautiful things was that we were able to co collaborate with Philip, who lives in Montreal, who's an old friend. And uh, since we went there, uh, he's kind of made this project obviously his own, and it's come to define the majority of his work. And he's been back countless times, back and forth uh, to the reservation, he was able to take all of that research in a, in a completely, uh, to develop it into, um, into something that I think the fruit of which is the book, The Mohawk Warrior Society. Um, which is what we're, you know, we're here speaking about today. And this is after, you know, uh, I guess, how many, how many years has it been, guys, since, since uh, I guess we came first to Mohawk, to, to uh, Aquasazne in 2014, Matt. Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, but we probably started working on the book in 2015, 2016. So this has been the fruit of a lot of labor. And then we also, of course, uh, collaborated with uh, Continenta, who's not here with us, uh, who uh, um, is an old-time activist, uh, uh, herself Mohawk. And so, yeah. The next question I have, and maybe you answered this already, is uh, <laughs> are the Mohawk people, I mean, I'm familiar with the hairstyle, and I've heard of the Mohawk people, but I think like many settlers, like myself, I actually am pretty ignorant uh, about the First Nations and Indigenous people. So tell, tell me a little about the, the Mohawk people. Uh, well, Mohawk is a settler word uh, that would come from the dutch language and uh, it means uh it would mean like the man eaters but it's in a sense where you know they they were they could be pretty dangerous people if you uh you know didn't have them on your side and uh actually uh that's especially because they call themselves the ganyan gehaga which means the, the people of the land of flint and they're part of a confederacy uh that had originally five nations uh the seneca anaida Cayuga, um, uh, Onondaga, which are the central fire, um, and the Mohawks are the, uh, the, the guardians, the keepers of the Eastern door. So this spans a pretty large territory, uh, that goes towards the region of Buffalo, uh, let's say the, um, where the Senecas are and all the Adirondacks and, and uh, and, um, uh, Eastern New York are Mohawk territory and up to the St. Lawrence river. But this is just to say the the homelands, you know, original smaller homelands. But it's a a vast zone of influence and of alliances because this confederacy 
based on the story of the the peacemaker Digaranwida, uh, who uh, you know put an end to uh, uh, to civil wars between all these peoples, uh, proposing a formula for peace, which is the Gaganregoa, the, the, the often is translated the great law of peace, but it really has nothing to do with law. It's really a way to conduct oneself. It's more of an ethical posture, uh, but also some, you know, protocols where there's um, um, what we translate as chiefs, but again, it's not a chief and it's not a law because there's no coercion. They actually carry the uh, the words of the families. And it's, in fact, you know, the true basis of this confederacy is a system of uh, self-governance by the families, by the clans, uh, in a matrilineal clans as well. And the women are really, uh, you know, central in decision making, like the villages uh, belong to them and the earth uh, belongs to them. And the titles of the chiefs, the chiefs are are men, but they take their instructions uh, um, from the families where the women are the central influence. And uh, so they were the Rodnusuni or Iroquois Confederacy, of which the uh, Ganyagihaga are part, was the largest uh political and military force when the first settlers arrived uh, in northeastern um, Anuarege, a turtle island, as they say, uh, uh, in North America. Um, and so the, and very, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the protocols for self-governance, but also for relationships with the outside, um, the diplomacy, uh, an intricate system uh, that had a tremendous influence also in the creation of the United States of America as this decentralized uh, kind of body politic uh, founded on the, uh, on the states. Benjamin Franklin was, uh, you know, close to some Iroquois counselors and it gave some inspiration. Um, and in the military point of view also, you know, of a, all the wars we could say until the war the uh, between uh great britain and uh and the us in 1812 the issues you know the issue of those wars were determined by who the runusuni uh uh were sided with and so and words like canada come from the mohawk language as well so there's a a, a very large uh claim over the history the development of this uh of this continent and of the western world more generally and where I'm from, who are we talking right. with? <laughs> yeah, but it's rather, should I, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's pretty interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, it's unlike in later stages in the 19th century when um, the United States military is kind of fully developed. Uh, at, at that at that period of time, I mean, the, the Mohawks are able to be a decisive player uh, in part because of the strength of their Confederacy, but also in part because there, there isn't, the United States is a series of colonies and so it's it's this weird amalgamation of churches, imperial powers, local colonies, um, trade networks, etc. And within that, the 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 Mo I mean, I think we we underestimate how much the Mohawks were um, and the Iroquois were part of the popular imagination of the fledging uh, the fledgling United States at that time. For example, I think the Boston Tea Party, if I'm not mistaken, they they were dressed particularly as Mohawks. I I don't know much about that though. Yeah, they had like Mohawk war hoops and it was in 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 the history of uh well the first revolutionaries they were kind of self-indigenizing themselves as is that because creating this is that because mohawks represented kind of liberty a sense of liberty or a sense of kind of potential freedom within the early american consciousness yes of self-governance absolutely okay. 
Okay, okay, so it's now one week after the first two questions, because my internet went out, <laughs> but um, we can pick up where we left off. Uh, you were talking about this self-indigenizing idea of the American revolutionaries and, and colonists like identifying with the political structures of indigenous people, including the Mohawks, and that's something we've, we've talked a lot about on the show over the last couple of years, I think starting with Dawn of Everything. And then more recently talking about the the book Settlers and Gone to Croatan and, you know, this overall romanticization and, and fetishization of, of traditional life ways of American Indians, um, which is generally pretty taboo in the left. But also this, I think there's elements of that in the, the decolonization tendency of the past decade because it goes in all these different directions. Um, some of them are purely about political struggles. Some of them more about like conceiving autonomous ways of life influenced by uh, Native Americans. And so hopefully I, w- I want to talk more about that at the end of the interview. But uh, this book is largely about a project that proposed and in some ways experimented and actualized exactly that, which is uh, Ganyange in upstate New York near the border with Quebec. And so let's let's just give a background on that struggle. Well, that was in 1974. So one year after Wounded Knee, you know, that uh, big standoff with the uh, between Lakota people in Pine Ridge. Um, is it South Dakota? Um, yeah. Pine Ridge, Lakota people and the FBI and really a big standoff. Um, and so that was the following year. And that was, uh, um, it started with people in, in Ganawake and that was us name, Mohawk communities, where there had been some conflict for a few years since the... Uh, uh, Rotiskan Agete, the Warrior Society, had started, uh, you know, uh, being more oppositional to the Quebec police force, especially. There were a few moments of uh, confrontation, and that also sparked conflicts within the community uh, because of that usual colonial blackmail, you know, of, uh, of dividing families with the uh, uh, Indian agent present and the band councils and all that. So it was a decision from part of the traditionals to... Um, uh, to move outside of the reservation, you know, that's been set aside as, uh, you know, s- some sort of concentration camp to, to keep the indigenous people inside and uh, go live uh, on their traditional territory, uh, their traditional ways of life, and to declare it independent territory and uh, just to start a new life that way. And so they selected... Uh, um, uh, a spot in the Adirondacks, uh, uh, New York State, uh, right in the snow belt, uh, really. So that would that proved to be quite a challenge because agriculture was really difficult there, and they didn't have any electricity. And it was actually um, uh, near Moss Lake, uh, a big uh, camp, like a summer camp for rich children, the Rockefellers, people like that, that had been abandoned for a few years. And it belonged to New York State, and so the Mohawks wanted, you know, to uh, reappropriate uh, uh, public land uh, and not not spark conflicts with, uh, you know, individual uh, private so-called owners. Uh, so they went there in uh, 1974, and they had some kind of stratagem to to they like the the police were uh, thought that they were going to Vermont, so. Uh, they weren't prepared there, so they succeeded a big caravan to to go on that land, and um, and then in the following years there was 
some you know opposition from uh, local vigilantes and even sh uh, shootouts at certain points and uh, which led to some unfortunate events of uh, you know uh, also random people uh, receiving bullets so it was pretty intense for a few years but then the negotiations continued and uh, the Mohawks there were really you know adamantly uh, following their um, you know saying that their process is only based on their uh, on the guy they go on their traditional law and uh, on that land being unseated and uh, New York State uh, it was Cuomo I think the governor uh, ended up um, you know having to acknowledge uh, that they were right and it was their constitutional right to uh, to live on their own land following their own ways um, so finally there's another uh, land that was more suitable for agriculture uh, close to Minor Lake, and that's near Plattsburgh, New York State, really close to the Canadian border. Uh, that's where they uh, uh, moved finally in the 80s, and it still exists today. And it's still an autonomous territory that's not a reservation, that doesn't have a very clear legal status. It's under like a, a trust, uh, and the trustees are all white people. So it's really, but, you know, internally, it's entirely uh, regulated as an autonomous sovereign territory still. And and so it was the Mohawk Warrior Society that took this land and and eventually managed well, uh, it. When we talk about that's the thing when we talk about the Mohawk Warrior Society it's uh you know there is no such thing in fact you know it's somewhat a fiction and the book tells a story of how it's a fiction that was put out there in order to gain more bargaining power uh with the uh, with the colonial states uh but actually the Mohawk term rotiskanagete uh, applies to all men. It's actually the, the men's fire and their responsibility is uh, modeled after the sun. Uh, like in the famous warrior flag, which is actually called the unity flag. There's a, um, the, the, the head of an indigenous man there with a, you know, a red background and a, a big sun. And that traditionally in the, in Iroquois cosmology, uh, the men are associated with the sun while the women come from the earth. So the earth belongs to the women. Uh, they're the caretakers of the earth, the progenitors of the soil, they say. And so the women make the uh, the decisions that the men have to apply. And uh, so the warrior society are actually names the gender role of men in general to enforce the women's decisions. So how would you characterize the the group that initiated this action? Were they traditional Mohawks? Were they uh, aligned with a, a political tendency like AIM? Yeah, I, there's like an earlier prehistory where some of the people involved in the Ganyange occupation in 74, some of their parents and uncles and grandparents were involved in a similar occupation in the 50s, trying to reclaim state lands in New York State and kind of live a kind of autonomous, traditional lifestyle or whatever. And it didn't last that long. And then later, I think in this kind of spirit of post-68 kind of militancy, which would include the Black Panthers or the Young Lords or the American Indian Movement, et cetera. I think the Mohawks took that in a kind of, for lack of a better word, like nationalist direction and kind of organized themselves in armed groups or armed formations. So taking on this spirit of kind of militancy that was happening throughout the U.S. or North America, but applying it in their specific kind of context or territories or lands or something. And I think that's what the Mohawk, what we, when we're using this term, the Mohawk Warrior Society, it's kind of the, the combination of 
what was happening with AIM and the Black Panthers and Post 68 and, and some of the people in our book, you know, went to the Alcatraz occupation in 68. They went to the Mudanee occupation in 73. They were part of a lot of these early uh, native um, protest movements throughout the United States. So it's kind of applying that spirit or that energy of militancy happening throughout the country to, you know, traditional Mohawk lands. And I think that's what Ganyange is in 74, is how do, how do we take this spirit and kind of this energy? And, and you know, they're younger people. We talk in the book about some of the people, you know, were working on construction sites because people, that, that was a traditional job for Mohawks, either in Montreal or New York City, and kind of they're reading about things like, you know, wounded knee, et cetera. And then they're kind of coming back to see their families and learning that younger people are kind of getting organized or something. So Ganyange really seems like the coalescing of these energies or this spirit that's in the air of, of this younger generation applying all of this to Mohawk lands. But, and and um, when I ask about uh, uh, traditional Mohawk, there's, there's mm-hmm. a, they discuss in the book how a lot of, um, a lot of their, a lot of people are forgetting their language. They're forgetting their traditions. Uh, they're forgetting like the, the cosmologies you're talking about. So what is it when you say like a, a traditional member of a tribe, is that sort of this political rebirth or is that something that's always been there? It's, it had always been there, but then it gets kind of what's interesting about the Mohawk society, Mohawk warrior society, in my opinion, is it's a kind of resurgence of a certain traditionalist tendency. First of all, I mean, there are several traditionalist tendencies because there's many different ways of reclaiming the past or, or ways of preserving even. And so like one one kind of tr- tendency that um, that the warriors are counter to is like the Code of Handsome Lake, which is this kind of syncretic religion that combines Christianity with uh, Mohawk spirituality. So a big dis- so they'll, for example, speak of a creator. And one of the things that the 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 war society as followers of the quote unquote great law, which we could also see as the great way or the great path, they speak of creation. So they don't, they don't deify the creator in that way. But anyway, point is uh, within, within the Mohawks and within other, within other Iroquois nations, there were certain, certain people had preserved, uh, uh, certain families had preserved uh, certain cosmologies or certain traditions mainly through the language, even though that was very, very hard in the early 20th century, where if Christians, uh, Christian natives or other people heard uh, people performing their ceremonies, they could call the police. And it was kind of illegal to publicly gather and perform indigenous spiritual, you know, spiritual traditions. But there, despite that, there were families that had preserved um, linguistically, uh, uh, at least through language, that preserved a lot of their ceremonies. And yeah, so what happens is in the 60s, there's, a, there's these youth who are interested in rediscovering that, but then also translating it um, into something that makes sense in the modern age. And I think that's what's interesting about the Mohawk society. It's this combination of this group of people who come from this lineage that has really preserved and handed down this knowledge from a long time ago, but then they're also very savvy and conscious of how to present themselves in a way that makes sense in the modern age. And they talk about how the beginning of the warrior society actually starts with the logo this kind of logo that was stitched onto these leather jackets. So it's very much, on the one hand, it's this, it's, 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 uh, it's polar opposites, I'm say. So in one sense, it's extremely, it's this tendency that has done more to preserve the Mohawk tendency in one way, but then it completely reemerges in a context that's distinctively modern um, with these guys with these leather jackets, 
this emblem that's sewed on. It kind of makes use of the coolness almost of kind of 50s aesthetics in terms of the way they, they, uh, they relaunch themselves among the youth. Because it starts off really with the, mo the modern incarnation of it, starts off with the, um, with the design element and the way they dressed. Uh, furthermore, also the modern aspect of it is very much in the name itself, warrior society, because the, the, the real term has much as not actually the term warrior. It's he who keeps the earth, um, with them or he who keeps their responsibility to the earth as Phil was saying. So the translation of it to warrior is also a way of, of, uh, being very conscious of the, of, of, of the, of how, of, of representation, how to represent yourselves to the outside world both how to represent yourselves to other people within your community in order to make it something attractive to the youth, but also how to represent yourselves to your enemy in order to inspire fear. And we have this very interesting anecdote in the book where during the French and Indian War, uh, because the French had had this idea of the Mohawks as being these savage, vicious warriors, during a battle, when the Mohawk warriors came up, the French kind of just dropped their weapons and retreated without even fighting because they were already terrified of their own mental image of the Mohawks. And so that's why they decided in the 50s to kind of, and when the 60s rather, when they when they when the group kind of emerged in its modern incarnation, to use the term warrior um, as a way not only of capitalizing off of the cultural uh, cachet and coolness of the term, but also as a way of, of almost purposefully mistranslating their own terminology as a weapon of war. And I think it's in this kind of modern reformulation of what this traditional um, what these what these traditions can mean that Louis Hall plays a key role as well. I don't know if that that's, was coherent. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's actually a strategic use of those modern means, you know. And Louis Hall, getting like that Jay, who uh, who painted the uh, you know the the warrior flag and who wrote the uh, warrior's handbook and, and everything, he was very conscious of uh, what what he called that psychological warfare and the necessity to to fight it on a plane. Uh, where you know uh, to 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 fight the uh, desubjectivation of indigenous people and uh, how they're you know being gaslighted into not believing in their own tradition. So there's a strategic use of those modern means of and psychological warfare for you know uh, uh, fostering pride and uh, and uh, uh, a warrior spirit. But at the same time, there's also uh, going back to you know the roots of what. Uh, the grandparents and the ancestors were saying right. that happened at the same time. Uh, they started using again those old words like uh, Turtle Island, Anuarege, that no one was using anymore like in, in right. the 50s except the elders. And so there was some degree of acculturation uh, that they also fought against. So it's like a double movement. And right. that's ongoing as well, you know, that's also ongoing now with the new means of communications that happen. And uh, also uh, more and more uh, those people, you know, trying to, in the 70s, they would say like, we are a nation, uh, but now they don't use that term anymore. You know, right. they, they, they say, no, it's actually a people. Mm. So there, there's always an ongoing, you know, struggle to, to find uh, more exact translations of what the original language actually means. Um, you mentioned yeah, before that two polarities uh, in a way it makes it kind of interesting. It's yeah. distinctively traditional, but then distinctively modern. And it kind of, they kind of skip over that whole period of colonialism to reemerge in this kind of modern and powerful way, which is what makes it so fascinating. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I just want to get back to something that you said about how they were, 
you know, projecting this this warrior mentality to inspire fear, and I, that seemed to have worked because uh, you mentioned before that Cuomo said that they were right. Maybe he said that elsewhere, but there's this quote in the book uh, where he declares, "We disengaged them from a hostile situation." We ceased the continuous fighting of our laws, and we reduced the possibility of violence. And what were the alternatives? I don't believe the Indians should have been killed. Um, and this is, he says this in 1978, when uh, they moved to Minor Lake, and they've been there ever since, right? Um, so how did that experiment play out? And I, I assume you've been there uh, recently. What is it like today? I mean, I think also when you think about Ganyange and how the New York State was relating to it, you know, in 71, there's the Attica a prison uprising, mm-hmm. where, which was, was incredibly violent. And, you know, I think a number of people were killed. So it's also in the aftermath of that. And I think actually Rockefeller, I think Andrew Cuomo would later go on to become governor, but he was secretary of state. And they were kind of really worried about a kind of another violent bloodbath around kind of state police forces and kind of armed minor, minority kind of groups. So that was part of it. But I think now, you know, Malik and I visited at the end of 2014, pretty early on in the project. And, you know, what's interesting is that they kind of act as if they're totally a separate autonomous space or territory. So they have their own kind of businesses like gas stations or, um, golf courses, health centers, food places, which actually it's a relatively poor, the, the surrounding areas are fairly poor white part of New York state. So they actually employ a fair amount of, you know, poor white people in these kind of Mohawk businesses that don't pay taxes that are not regulated by the state. They have, you know, the, the gasoline or the tobacco or the bingo and kind of all of these things are sort of outside of the state economy. So it's so sort of fascinating case and it's interesting you know there are like books and articles about Kenyange, but it remains fairly obscure and i think that obscurity is interesting you know something like wounded knee which lasted for a couple months is part of the kind of leftist imaginary of, of that era of of of, of what happened whereas Kenyange remains kind of obscure it's not really a reference point for kind of leftists or even with really within the kind of native uh, self-imaginary of kind of militancy. And I think that's fascinating. It's, it could be part of the opacity of it that it kind of has has remained kind of a bit underground on some level or something. But it is, you know, when we think about land back and decolonization, the fact that it's not a more visible and known reference point or touchstone is is fascinating. You know, just being in New York State, it's not, you know, it's, it's fairly close to... to metropolitan areas or something so yeah it's interesting that how how that how that's happened i mean i guess it's favorable in some ways because maybe that opacity has allowed it to kind of continue to exist but mm-hmm. yeah within the recent decolonial language and kind of popularity or trendiness of some of that discourse it's, it's fascinating how that isn't more of a, a reference point indeed yeah indeed and um, a lot of their rhetoric early on was like, we don't want any help from white people. We we're trying to be completely autonomous within this uh, in this space. But now it looks like there's a golf course there, right? Um, do you th- do you see that as something of a defeat, or is that kind of a natural transition? 
I think like the Mohawk economic, the, so part of the, the war society or part of the sovereignty is kind of experimenting with economic sovereignty, mm -hmm. which includes selling things to settlers or kind of, you know, taking producing things and reselling them or kind of taking advantage of their understanding or definition of sovereignty, which included tobacco and bingo and casinos and, you know, golf courses as well or, or whatever, you know, whatever kind of business opportunities would bring money into the Mohawk communities or nation is something they're willing to do. And the interesting thing is the ways in which they do it without paying taxes or without regulation, like a normal economic situation would be in the in New York or the United States where you'd have to get licenses or insurance or pay taxes or get regulation or whatever. From what I understand, you know, Ganyange and a lot of these Mohawk kind of outfits uh, throughout the territories and reservations and reserves do not do that. So I think for them, that's part of exercising their sovereignty um, and part of resistance to settler colonialism is to kind of bring in the resources to kind of further produce and develop the communities. Um, so how characteristic do you think the, the, the texts in this book are to other North American militant indigenous groups? I think what makes uh, the very basic kind of what makes the Mohawk Warrior Society unique, I think, at least in terms of its scale compared to, let's say, the American Indian Movement, is that the American Indian Movement uh, emerged from Native people who were living in cities. And even the very idea of pan-Native unity, or a group that is formed on a, on, a, on a Native identity, well, Native identity exists because of colonialism. That's why we can speak of a Native identity, whereas before, obviously, you would have a you you your your identity would be tied to a distinct family, which is part of a larger, uh, uh, let's say, clan, which is then part of a larger um, nation or tribe, which is then part of a larger confederacy. So, what's interesting about the Mohawk Warrior Society, in comparison, let's say, with AIM, because that's the most known group, is the fact that they they it started on the reservation, or it started you know in in these native communities that are not in cities, right, that are on their traditional territory, or and it begins. Um, from within the language and the cosmology and the political culture of a particular peoples. Uh, so even though there is this, obviously, it's, um, it's a, a group that's supportive and had good relations with AIM and was supportive of a kind of pan-native unity, it, be it doesn't begin from a position of pan-native unity. It begins from the specific specificity of their own cultural traditions as a distinct people. And that's something we noticed with, you know, I mean, with the native and the refugee is that in the Palestinian case, or in the Arab case, they divided people into all these different kind of nations who were actually speaking one language. But in the in the case of natives, you actually had people who spoke wildly different language, had different religions, or different spiritualities, had different traditions, then who were kind of morphed into this one identity because of colonialism. And so the way that, um, well, Phil. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree, but... Uh, it, it, it it's like for yeah is this there's also the 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 opposite process it's some kind of you know it locks with also you know because uh, yes there's a multiplicity of different languages and but the way that uh indigenous people uh, name themselves you know their their ethnonyms uh, is according to the territory so these notions also of set distinct mm. nations are not extremely relevant and there is within this you know 
say activist movement for lack of a better word of the warrior society also like a larger understanding that um oh it, yeah it's not course. that relevant to talk of the mohawks versus other peoples it's umwe umwe is the people of the forever the uh, of the way of creation and that's all indigenous people and all indigenous peoples throughout not only uh turtle island but perhaps the planet have a common understanding of taking instructions from the earth and mm. you know have distinct ways related to how uh, the configuration of of the land where they happen to be but some things you know i, I i'm i'm often uh, you know really baffled by how you have common understandings i was talking with inu people uh, a few days ago and they have words to say well you can't sell the land the land belongs to the future generations the the children mm. yet to come and you have the exact same expression in, uh, mm. in mohawk language that there's no linguistic relation between them you know and you mm. hear mapuche people down in um you know mm. argentina saying the same thing or people in india indigenous people mm. saying the same thing there is a common you know <laughs> pan uh in uh, indigenous uh, way of thinking that is not only the reflection also of colonialism sure 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 but i i, I 100% but i i i think the difference is starting from your own specificity and then that bro broadening out to a common understanding versus beginning from um from outside as it were you know approaching yeah. it from so beginning rooted in your own traditions and then realizing the commonality through through your own specific traditions as yeah. opposed to beginning from a disembodied or alienated standpoint and then achieving that unity from a place of from a from a from a starting point of, of of alienation let's say that's i guess the difference if that makes sense absolutely yeah because there's been like one important figure um um that we don't talk about in the book but uh, he was also you know there's things that we didn't talk about but uh, a guy named S splitting the sky uh, John Bunkor Hill, the uh, Jaquat Ndeya, uh, he was in uh, Attica uh, during the the, the 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 prison revolt, and he was, you know, a pretty important figure in that. And afterwards, he found himself of, uh, in Gustafson Lake, uh, where there was a, another big standoff uh, that's in British Columbia with the army, you know, and they, they the army tried to kill them all. It was a, a standoff. They were trying to hold a, a Sundance ceremony on what was considered a private land and everything. And um, uh, back then, it brought people from many different, you know, uh, regions. And there was a common agreement that there is only one uh, law, the like the great law, you know, there's only one indigenous way and it's the same everywhere, but it just varies in the specifics of, of the region. So, but I agree, yeah, Malik, there's, uh, it, it starts from the specifics and then goes to the general, but it's not a disembodied uh, pan-Indianism or something. So, yeah, going back to the question of decolonizing, I think this really picked up in after Standing Rock, which was this huge mobilization of Native people and non-Native people to try to prevent this pipeline. And there's a lot of rhetoric there about this, like, pan-Indigenous movement and this, like, kind of mm -hmm. awakening of people against colonialism that does extend all the way down to, to the Mapuches and all the way to, the, to Alaska. But... Reading this book, you know, I, I can't help but like, really marvel at the the difficulty it must be to translate and transcribe oral history, um, not only for the people telling it and, and writing it, but just for you as, as researchers. Maybe we can talk a little bit before talking about more about decolonialism, about the, the challenges of putting together this book. Yeah, well, it took 
quite some time and back and forth. You know, we were just extremely lucky to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, talking with and to have the trust of um, amongst the most important knowledge keepers of the whole Rodnesuni Confederacy. Really, those people, Digarundegi Ganasaragon and Aderun uh, Yatagu, who passed away this last month, uh, are extremely important figures. Everyone acknowledges their uh, their profound knowledge of their own language. And the way they talk about it, it's really, you know, they were doing the, uh, the effort of uh, glossing, you know, and, and finding accurate translations for their own words. Mm. But it's really through a, a, a deep, deeply embedded knowledge that comes from, you know, learning and hearing their grandparents, uh, you know, say those words when they were kids. But it's another process that happens in the brain. And someone like Digarundagi says that when he speaks his language, he it's like having a movie projector in your brain because you mm. actually see moving images and that's the way that they proceed they break down words in like their phonemes and every phoneme awakens an image but mm. then it's those images start moving um and it's a different you know linguistically it's because it's a verbal language uh like the core of every word is a verb everything is like doing something there's no such thing as you know like in english in most indo-european languages you have like inert nouns objects that are being acted upon by a driving force which is the the verb you know and that's the very much the the way we see things generally but it's not the same way in in the the Kihaga language where you have mm. verbs that are being like delimited or qualified by nouns or by qualities and things like that so it's it's mm. just not the same thing happening in the brain it's not the mm. same way of, of thinking and of, uh, of symbolizing reality so it doesn't mm. bring the same practices too, you know, it's uh, much more efficient, you know, if you want to excavate a land and build infrastructure to have a language where you you are acting upon inert matter or nouns or something like that. So that's the larger thing that we can only, you know, broach the idea of what it could look like to think through an entirely different uh, language or differently structured. So yeah, yeah the process was just taking time reviewing everything reading it <clears throat> with them and then with someone else and they would correct this thing bring in a debate and that's why it took six years just we put the time because we liked it and it's really fascinating and important i think also like as documentarians or oral historians or journalists or whatever term you might use there's like when you do this kind of collaboration there's a different kind of epistemological thing happening where it's like when you ask us like oh tell me about Ganyange we might tell you what we think we know where when we ask them about Ganyange they might talk about the great law they might talk about a particular mm. word they might talk about a particular you know what a word means and how it relates they might talk about a particular anecdote with a family member so it's like this different kind of circuitous for lack of a better word path to kind of unpacking the history as a certain Western journalistic logic would want it. So part of the collaboration was a kind of translation, not from one kind of cosmology to another cosmology, mm. where it's like trying to understand a certain kind of linear Western timeline and what that happened. But to kind of get to get that would took years, basically, of kind of repeated conversations, repeated kind of asking, trying to understand 
why when we ask about this thing, they'll talk about a word and, and what that means and, and something like that. You know, so I think part of it is like, you know, there's a timeline in the book, which is a very kind of Western phenomenon to do, you know, these dates and when things happen in this linear way. But I for better words, that's how a kind of settler logic wants to understand history, right? It's like how things progress from one to the other or something, which isn't necessarily what, you know, the, how they might think about it or talk about it or something. And part of the collaboration or translation is thinking about that. But I think really for us, we were thinking like, how do we make a book that we wish existed when we first encountered, you know, the war society and what were the, you know, the Q and A is it's almost like an FAQ. Like what are the questions that we want to know that we would ask? We think other people would ask and how can we kind of summarize them for a new audience that maybe won't have those opportunities to meet and spend time with these people and kind of summarize these histories and these experiences and the kind of cosmology that led into those experiences of, you know, refounding the Mohawk War Society, of the Ganyange occupation, of some of the uh, the artwork and kind of, you know, polemics that Louis Hall was working on leading up into the Oka crisis in 1990. You know, where did this group come from? You know, that in a way, that's what the book is mm. trying to do uh, to summarize as best possible and, you know, to, to the extent that we could what this group was and hope that it exists as a different kind of document or different history than you might find with the American Indian movement, which has its own, you know, fascinating and important history, but is a very different progression, very different concept. And similarly, you know, you asked before about other native groups. I think there's something interesting in comparing it potentially with the Zapatistas or something, the way in which the Zapatistas call themselves an army, the way in which they experimented with aesthetics, and the masks, the way in which they resisted certain cults of personality, the way it played with kind of the imagination of the Mexican state, this kind of indigenous peasant army in the jungle. And, you know, I think there's playfulness that I don't know how directly, but in some ways, you know, carries on from the Mohawk Warrior Society. And in some ways it might be a better comparison than the American Indian Movement, even though the American Indian Movement's more contemporary to it to think about the Zapatistas as an organization, as an aesthetic political organization, how it continues from this 70s era warrior society kind of thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, um, for, for the book itself, it, it, it might not be visible in the finished product, but you know, it was, a, it included, our approach was kind of, fumbling in the dark too and it's lots of patchwork and makeshift arrangements like the interview with uh, Francis Boots at the Nuniadago it's actually four different interviews where mm. you know he names uh, other details that weren't in the other one and we kind of mishmashed it and reorganized it and edited it so it's all his words but it's just rearranged in a way that you know that <laughs> that people who are completely outside the culture can actually understand. So that's also why I think they wanted to work with us <clears throat> because we met them, we knew almost nothing about it. And we went through that whole process, you know, of uh, starting to understand, you know, and we were willing to do it. So it's just following that, you know, we, our, our, our task was to like uh, create that same cognitive process for non-Indigenous people to start from 
scratch and how do you take those readers by by the hand for them to understand what, what it's actually about you know and i think that's why they wanted to to work with us to to have a version that anyone could potentially understand yeah i mean i think it's it's trying to find this fine line between on the one hand respecting the way that they tell stories in this kind of anecdotal fashion and that's not always linear but at the same time, impose enough order onto it and sense on it that we do accomplish the work of translating it uh, and making it accessible. So there's this kind of tightrope uh, tight that we all had to walk upon across where you're, you're trying to be true to the way that they tell their stories or the way that these memories or these things exist within the oral culture of a society. Um, but at the same time, impose enough structure onto it where it can be legible in a certain way. So it's it's not one or the other, but it's a kind of crossroad. And just to be just uh, more globally, the book is compromised of many things. So the the, the, the book is many. It, the book um, has three. It, it it consists of interviews with people, which we constructed and and uh, kind of sewed together, as Phil was just talking about, which kind of chart the modern history of the oral society of the warrior society. There are uh, parts of so Louis Hall is kind of this in many ways, a spiritual kind of um, founder of, of the modern incarnation of the group. We republished some of his works, which have never really been published in this kind of format before. We published them for the first time. And then there's also works that, other works that we've either republished or published for the first time or commissioned um, for the book. And then last but not least, we have several kind of appendices that uh, or texts that we've created to help with this transmission. There's an introduction that we wrote collectively, footnotes. Um, Phil worked exceptionally hard on putting together a kind of Mohawk, uh, a kind of timeline, uh, a kind of history timeline, uh, a glossary of Mohawk political terminology that's intimately tied to their native language, um, et cetera, et cetera. A map of Mohawk place names that ignores the border and other kind of Europe, American, Canadian uh, interventions on the on the cartography of the landscape, et cetera. So it's a combination of interventions, oral history, and then material that we are publishing, uh, mainly the texts of Louis Hall, uh, as well as his artwork. So it's yeah, kind the, of a conglomeration of those three things. Louis Hall's pamphlets were a pretty fun read and <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm glad you like them. Well, yeah, that's sort of what I'm getting at is like some of the stuff that he says is pretty unorthodox to maybe typical leftist expectations. And that's sort of what I was getting at with the translating, not only between translating Mapuche struggles to struggles of uh, First Nations people in Canada, but also translating these struggles in general to a sympathetic left. What do you think in your, your discussions with Mohawk people? What are their uh, impressions of the left? Well, it depends uh, what the how the left interacts with their struggles because uh, you know their their vision and more and more I hang out with them you know and uh, we travel different cities to, for discussions with the book and uh, I you know when we enter a city we just see wow they're building all these skyscrapers they're trying to bring people in so to you know assert their claim over the land or something you know and uh, it's not. You know, it's not economic inequalities and things like that that matter or that affect them. It's really what's being done to the land and how these settler peoples are not giving a shit about how it's all been stolen and is continuously stolen. And so the left, um, I don't know, here in Quebec, Canada, 
well, they don't seem to be working much on Indigenous issues because Indigenous folks don't vote, you know, so there's no expectancy of uh, any rewards for, say, parliamentary leftist parties. Mm -hmm. Um, So it seems like it's only a decolonial uh, oriented, you know, directly on assisting Indigenous struggles, that sort of left that is able to have some, you know, decent and uh, interactions with the with indigenous struggles, uh, because it comes from a different, uh, you know, standpoint, which is difficult to access for settlers, just because we take for granted that this is, uh, this is America, this is the US, this is Canada, I was born here, and it's my right to just be here. Uh, Mm. But when you're indigenous, you just feel a constant loss. Every time this is not acknowledged, everyone, every time someone talks about Canada, as if it really existed, they don't remember that it's actually a Mohawk word, you know, that uh, they, 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 that Canadians don't even know what it means. It actually means squatters. Ganajam means uh, squatting. Um, and uh, so, so people have no idea about those things. And that's just constant microaggressions uh, for Indigenous people. And uh, so that's why it's, it's also hard to deal with because leftists will not have that training, that consciousness. It takes lots of education uh lots of reading and uh you know and developing that uh, sensitivity of what it can feel like and so it it often there's often yeah it often doesn't work when there's those from what i witnessed interactions with leftist groups so would you say that the the sort of trend of land acknowledgments is a step in the right direction well, just to put the word out there, and, uh, you know, I'm involved in legal struggles with uh, Indigenous folks where uh, this serves as a legal admission, you know, when McGill University uh, acknowledges that they're on uh, Mohawk land. Well, it still is Mohawk land, so, uh, you you know, we got to figure a, a way to repair this, you know. Uh, so that's okay, but still, the way it's being done, it's, um, you know, like the word for Montreal, uh here everyone says oh we acknowledge we're in Siotage they say but it's actually a longer word which means the, where the people broke up so it's not the name like a, a, a place name that existed forever because it, it, it's a you know a verbal language it, it changes with reality and it names mm. the, the mere fact that people can't meet there anymore because it's an island it was a gathering place between different peoples Anishinaabe peoples and North Iroquoians of the south so uh, the, the, that place name just names the fact that they they can't gather there anymore, you know. But mm. uh, in land acknowledgments, um, it doesn't go that way. It's just, oh, well, it used to be, you know, uh, it used to be another town with another name. But it's, it's deeper than that, you know. That's, mm. um, yeah, but it, it is a, a first step, you know, but it's a... Like if you say I, I, you know, I acknowledge that I so I stole uh, Jason's television. Uh, well, you still have that television. Why don't you give it back? You know. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you more about the legal struggle at McGill. Um, I read a little bit about this. It, it had to do with um, not only a, a a burial ground, but also MK Ultra style experiments on students and First Nation people. Could, could you describe that a little bit? Yeah. Well, that it started like. Two years ago, that uh, a group known as the Mohawk Mothers, a group of women based in Ganawake, uh, 
um, started opposing uh, renovation of an old hospital, the Royal Victoria Hospital. That's also that belongs to it's like managed by uh, McGill University as well. And that was the main hub for those MK Ultra uh, uh, medical experiments. Uh, you know, from the CIA and everything and the famous, you know, it's really the main entry point for all the conspiracy theories that we're dealing with now because it did happen. Experiments on mind control, extrasensory uh, uh, perception, uh, sensory deprivation that, you know, it's all, all the basic data that served for torture, uh, basically. Uh, techniques, you know, of uh, sensory deprivation and stuff like that were developed. They got that data from those experiments using unwitting patients, trying to erase their brain through electroshock. Back then they had all the, uh, they bought all the LSD from the, uh, directly from the laboratory and those CIA, you know, for famous experiments. And so there were allegations from uh, the few survivors that still exist of those experiments, uh, women in who now lives in Winnipeg, she's 82, Lana Ponting, who said that she saw Indigenous children there and that she saw suspicious activity uh, outside at night in 1958, you know, uh, like what seemed like burials. And there were other stories about that, and Mohawk community had some, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they had some stories about it also, uh, oral history. So um, uh, I joined with them as an anthropologist and, helping them out with the stuff and uh well they filed it in court a superior court of quebec and uh we got an injunction to block that uh that project renovation project which it's like a billion dollar project a huge thing and it's been blocked ever since and uh it's it's ongoing you know there's so many small dealings and it's really it's uh, it's lots of work but it it, it does like open a big bag, a bag of worms, which is, you know, what happened with those state-backed experiments on how to control people. That's where they got the data, you know, that uh, allowed for all the system to work the way it does work, you know, and how to control the minds of a population. Um, and uh, so we're trying to get, you know, it's really hard to get access to the records and everything because uh, most records we want, you need a signature from... Uh, air force uh, official or something and it's you know it's deeply top secret stuff uh but it's it's out there there are some traces and mohawk mothers are, are fighting hard to 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 get this all revealed and open this bag, bag of worms this is a little bit of an aside but did you know that one of the uh, student subjects of these experiments was leonard cohen Oh, well, that's, I know about that story and it's, it's crazy actually, because, you know, his two first novels, uh, beautiful things. It's some crazy, not, uh, be um, beautiful, no, losers. beautiful losers, uh, beautiful losers, which yeah, is, is one way to learn this. the history of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, uh, set the settlement of Montreal, maybe not the best way. Yeah. Well, it's some kind of rape story, rape fantasy of this Mohawk saint. It's mm -hmm. a horrible book. And his second one, uh, the favorite game. I'm reading it right now, actually, and it's uh, it's really there's. It seems to be a coded language with what he saw over there on the mountain. It's mm. it's really strange. I don't know what to do with that exactly, you know, because it's also fiction. Right. But the whole story is about being on the mountain and keeping like lab rats and turtles in the basement and like using them as sex slaves and stuff like that and it's all happening on mount royal at the allen memorial hospital 
And um, it, it is scary stuff. But there's some conspiracy theories out there with Leonard Cohen as a, um, and we know he was involved, you know, with the uh, with the Mossad and you know Zionism and stuff like that. And he was somewhat conservative as well. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting topic. Getting back to Matt and Malik, this is one project that you've done. You've been working on projects for years, interviewing Native people and refugees. You put out a film, Spaces of Exception, that'll be at Anthology uh, in October. This is a re- really great film. Um, is it still available on Eflux? Can people still stream it? No, it's streamed for two weeks on Eflux, and it's no longer no longer streaming on Eflux. But the film will be making its North American theatrical debut. Uh, an anthology on October 27th, and uh, it's going to be nice. It's going to, I think, it screens five times. It's, it's screening between October 27th and October 31st. And in addition to that, because um, I was Native and the Refugee is a multimedia research project, and a, a big part of our project is not only the feature from Spaces of Exception, but a series of shorts. So there's two shorts, well, one short program that we'll be repeating twice for two screenings, and we're also having a guest screening, um, or a screening that we're programmed of the film Acts of Defiance, um, which is is tied also to, the, to this book that we're talking about today. So there will be a film event um, also tied to, to, the, to the book that we're talking about. And we're also going to be within the screening of the, within the short screening, we're going to be screening a film called The Way of the Longhouse that Matt and I made with Adam Khalil, uh, another uh, native videographer and video artist. And that film um, is basically the product of our very first time at Aquas Night. And deals with the Warrior Society in Aquasasna directly. Yeah, within the feature film Space of Exception, there's maybe a 15 20 minute section as well about right. the Mohawks and Aguasasna and featuring a lot of the characters with excerpts of some of the interviews, but threaded together in a different visual narrative about the place, about, you know, Space of Exception. The concept is thinking about the reservation and the refugee camp as being kind of outside of the nation state, being kind of part of the legacies of settler colonialism, but being non-citizens. So both the indigenous as a form of non-citizenship and both the refugees being excluded from citizenship. And what are the spaces where these people kind of are placed or gather or assemble or kind of exist outside of the kind of the nation basically so it's five different portraits or segments within this feature film that's but part of it is Aguasazne with mostly the members of the warrior society are kind of featured in the film it's also about i mean uh, what kinds of political organizing do these spaces make possible or or uh and so i mean you have for example on the palestinian idea you have the progressive uh, the plo you know, Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PFLP, Progressive Front for Liberation of Palestine, the DFLP, Democratic Front for Liberation of Palestine, as kinds of political groups that are made possible um, by uh, the refugee experience and, and can only emerge in a way from the refugee camp and have a, a kind of certain posture in terms of class struggle that is made possible because of their existence as refugee camp, uh, as refugee movements. And so we try to think about what now those are in the those are in the 70s, 60s and 70s. But we try to look at what forms of political organization are made possible today, or, or what is the what is the political perspective of self-organized refugees in camps on nation states uh, like Lebanon, uh, like the like the Palestinian Authority, and obviously like Israel. And we try to accomplish something similar 
with reservations and people who are organizing reservations in the United States. Um, although maybe in reservations, not so much that the reservations birth new form. Well, they do in a way. They both they, they both preserve older forms of social organization and then um, also, in a way, birth new forms of political movements. Even though both spaces are these spaces also of punishment in many ways, too. I mean, that's the whole contrast of of trying to understand the, the, the potential but also the deprivation of both refugee camps and, uh, and reservations in the United States and the Middle East. Um, I want to ask what's well, the closing question for each of you to answer, uh, which is, you know, I, Matt and Malik, I've been really impressed by your work because I know a lot of people in, especially in the Northeast who will do land acknowledgements in one way or another, um, but don't actually know Lenape or Canarse people what, who they are, what they want, where they live. It's just virtue signaling, which is not the case with you. you. You actually are interested in traveling, talking to these people, documenting their struggles. So if you do want to do more than just virtual signal um, and you're, you want to support indigenous struggle, how would you follow these struggles and how would you participate? I mean, I think it's tricky, you know, like, you know, myself, I live in New York City and, you know, Malik used to live here and, you know, we got interested in reservations as, you know, as because of what I was saying, because of the specificity of the spatial specificity of the politics, the jurisdiction, the question of sovereignty, the question of land, et cetera, that you could see through them. But part of the experience of colonization has meant that most indigenous people don't don't live anymore in reservations or something. So right. there's a different dynamic of meeting where you meet, who you meet changes that encounter, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I think that's part of the dynamic. Whereas, you know, one thing could see where there are still self-organized native communities and groups on reservations or otherwise and trying to get in touch with them, understand the different struggles or dynamics happening. I mean, there's lots of powwows that happen throughout the United States and North America, which are kind of festival celebrations, which are an easy entry point and there's lots of tables and vendors and things to find out about different issues going on you know and social media makes it easier a lot of our research and contacts initially came through just cold contacting people on social media but i think one interesting dynamic is to think about these land struggles both on and off reservations around uh infrastructure you know extraction drilling mining you know pipelines dams power plants etc because often throughout the throughout North America, it's indigenous people who are on the front lines of those struggles and then finding ways to kind of collaborate or self-organize or something. But And some of those groups do have presences within cities, and New York City has a lot of different groups. Uh, you know, we partnered with one of the groups to kind of co-present the Mohawk Warrior Society book release at Judson Church, which is, you know, led by... Uh, you know, Mohawk women kind of leading that struggle. And, you know, we can include a link, I guess, in the notes about how to how to get in touch with them. But I think I think understanding as part of the experience of settler colonialism is to understand the land you're on or the land you're near and who are the people that were are on that land and what are the nearby reservations. You know, in Long Island there's two there's two state and federally recognized reservations, the Shinnecock and the Puspatuck. And there, no one really talks mm -hmm. about them. You know, people do like Lenape land acknowledgements, but there are two reservations not very far away on Long Island to think about. One of which, the Shinnecock, is right next to the Hamptons and has interesting land struggles 
around wealthy people vacationing at the Hamptons or something. And I think that would be an interesting kind of collaboration for New Yorkers to think about just as an mm -hmm. example. But, you know, I feel, I know Phil's been much more involved in Montreal because it's a, it's a more potent dynamic struggle happening there, more visible. But yeah, that's some of my thoughts about that question. And connecting yeah. people, sorry, and connecting people. So that's now Phil's going to, but like helping sometimes other people can do more, you know? So, I mean, we connected Phil and then it took a complete life of its own and it's, and he's done incredible, incredible work with Mohawk people. So you never know where things can go. I think the more connections that can be made, even if you can't do so, if you can introduce someone, bring people, bring your friends, the more that you can build these kind of connections, it can go in unforeseen ways. So. Yeah, I agree. It's more of a, you know, a question of how to handle a indirect intervention and like helping without, you know, because we have to be mindful also that, uh, you know, there's lots of white people and lots of lots of settler people that would like to help, you know, or that would want to, to hang out all the time with indigenous folks because it it does, you know, there's an old fascination from settlers, uh, from the part of settlers for indigenous ways of being. And it kind of satisfies some kind of ego crisis within settler societies to have this uh, to encounter this unity so it's also really important you know not to be invasive really mm. not to just you know look on the map oh there's this res let's just try to find people because are you doing that for them or are you, are you trying to solve your own identity crisis and trying to make sense of your own life you know so another way of thinking about it um because yeah, amplifying those voices can be done without being directly in contact too you know you can share all of that you can and you're you're entitled also to to yeah amplify those those voices as they do exist um but also fighting for the land itself you know uh, something that indigenous people will always mm -hmm. you know uh, repeat mm -hmm. is that they are one with the land and they belong to it and the animals are part of it the trees are part of it their family and so whenever you're defending any patch of 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 land from development you're you are fighting for for indigenous people you are an ally whether they know about it or not and mm. you know if you see it happening next to where you live well you can try to put the word out there so so the indigenous stewards uh, you know would be even conscious that it happens but that's really the situation resulting from genocide is that there's very few of them. That was the in, intention of uh, of the, uh, the the genocide uh, conducted by the settler states was a demographic, much the same way as uh, in Israel. You know, it's a demographic struggle, and so there's few of them. So it's important not to be invasive in those ways, uh, but to amplify because you know the voice of one single elder that might be uh, you know in this. Uh, Res in Oklahoma, you know, that voice, just you amplify it and it just means so much for the knowledge of what happened on this continent and what has to be done for uh, for this land to, to, to recover some some dignity and some some uh, some health. So, mm. yeah, I'll just add to that that I think the Stop Cop City movement has done a great job of that in Atlanta by, you know, it's a project that has a lot of different facets, environmentalism, um, police abolitionism, racial justice, anti-gentrification, but they did a really good job of getting Muscogee people to the land to have uh, their own powwow and their, produce their own statement and their own politics. And that was a pretty powerful part of being there is 
understanding the history of Muscogee people until the Trail of Tears and uh, and how they see this as an ongoing process. It really um, gave a new dimension to the struggle that uh, you know made it very powerful. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, everyone should check out the book. It's from PM Press. The link will be in the show notes. Any closing words, everybody? No. All right. Thanks a lot, Andy. The book, the book was translated. The book was also published in Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, It's in French in as France. well? Yes, it's in French as well. And it's published in, it's available in Europe and it's available in Canada. You're uh, saying it's a bestseller yeah. in France. I don't know if it's a bestseller in France, but it's it's been pretty uh, widely. I see it everywhere. Everybody at the hipster uh, Parisian cafe is reading Mohawk Warrior Society. Perhaps I think there's a hunger for I think there's a hunger for um, decolonial kind of knowledge about indigenous struggles on on Turtle Island. So, um, and I hopefully this book is a kind of important uh, part of that literature. And I think it just in general, when we look at indigenous struggles, it's always with this historical lens. So part of the intervention of the Native and the Refugee was just simply to look at Native peoples as contemporary peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, and so and I think that's that's more and more happening. Um, that's been a trend that's been in a lot of literature and art more and more, starting here and uh, starting there rather in Turtle Island, but also I think making its way across the world. And so hopefully the book is an important contribution to that emerging field. sent you here to dispose of us as you see fit. If I thought you were sent by the Creator, I might be induced to think you had a right to dispose of me. Do not misunderstand me, but understand me fully with reference to my affection for the land. I never said the land was mine to do with as I choose. The one who has a right to dispose of it is the one who has created it. I claim a right to live on my land and accord you the privilege to return to yours.